You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, and if you... If you would, turn to Genesis chapter 2 and stand in honor of the reading of the Scripture. You know, we do that every time uh, we stand out of respect of God's Word. I, I guess I probably wouldn't mind it if when the, the Scripture gets announced, if you just wanted to go ahead and stand right away. And unless I tell you not to, just because uh, I think it's a good habit to be in, to respect God's Word when we open it and read it. And so, just, uh, just to mention that this morning, Genesis 2 is where we're going to be, and here we are in Genesis 2 again, and you might be thinking, boy, I don't know, this is the third time that we've been in this chapter, and, uh, and I don't want to apologize for that, um, because sometimes there are things in a text that you, that you cannot skip, and today we're going to deal with the subject of the first marriage in the Bible, and I think most of us would say amen if, if, if I was to ask, do you think that's a subject we need to hear about? In our country. Amen. It absolutely is. Um, Genesis 2 gives us a glimpse then into what God intended marriage to look like. The very first marriage, this is what He wanted it to look like from the very beginning. And that matters because the redefining of the marriage relationship has had a huge negative impact on the United States of America. And as, as thankful as I am to be an American, and as much as I love this country, we have some glaring flaws that can only be fixed through God's Word. The, the answers to reform in our country um, are not education. It's not about being more woke. It's not about having more open conversations. That's not all there is to it. It's not about changing po policies or defunding police. And it's certainly not about revising history to fit our narrative. We must go back to the beginning and find out what God says because, folks, righteousness is the remedy. Absolutely. So we're going to see this morning, I want to read Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18, and read down through verse 25 on a very important subject. It says, And the Lord God said, It is not good, verse 18, that the man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Here we see God laying out his plan for the marriage relationship. Folks, before sin entered, we get a glimpse into God's mind on the relationship between a, hu a husband and wife. Everyone keeps talking about the new normal these days. 
But this morning, I want to look at God's normal for marriage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for your, the faithfulness of your people. I pray that you'd help me to convey uh, not, what you've, not what I want to say, but what the text is saying. God, I, if it's simple, it's simple. If it's helpful, Lord, that's what I'm hoping for. So God, help us to open our minds and hearts to what your word has to say about God's normal for marriage. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I read an article this week, and it was listing the kinds of things that may become the new normal after COVID-19. And can I be honest? It kind of made my stomach hurt. I was not excited to read some of those things. I don't, I don't think I'm ready to accept that all these new things will soon be considered normal. Things like physical distancing in every building. And I mean, I've observed that even here at Eastside Baptist Church. I mean, you want to be around each other. You want to fellowship. You want to see people and talk to people and be with each other. I don't want that to change. Uh, the new normal, something like masks everywhere you go. And, and listen, I, I understand wearing masks. I, I understand the, the reason that people do. But, but I would be okay if that doesn't become the new normal. Uh, I understand having shields at every checkout. That look like bulletproof glass just to protect you. Even though when you're giving the, uh, the checker your card, you lean around it and give it to him and hand it to him like that. You know, I'm not sure how much those things help, but I don't, I don't want that to be the new normal. I don't want to walk in a Walmart parking lot and have announcements coming across the parking lot telling me where to walk and where to go. I mean, I, I, don't, want to, I don't want the normal to be constantly quarantining because they've opened and then now closed and then they're opening and they're closing again depending on the numbers I don't want that to be the new normal I'm not ready for um, to be told which aisles I can go down at Walmart in which direction I'm allowed to walk I'm not ready for to have dirty looks every time I get within six feet of a stranger I'm not ready for that I'm not ready to put armor on my suburban every time a new report comes out because we have to make a supply run I'm not ready I've just Listen, if I think about all the things being labeled new normal, uh, I mean, it almost just makes me anxious. I'm not ready for everything to change for good. But as I thought about new normals, I also began to think that life does go through the cycle. New things do become the norm all the time. This is not a, this is not a new concept. It happens all the time. I remember, and many of you in here too, I remember when the internet became a new normal. Do you remember that? I mean, my children, they think the internet has always existed, that it's in the book of Acts somewhere, that it's just always been around. I mean, they, to them, it is normal. But I remember, I was telling somebody this week, I didn't get online until I was a junior in college. I mean, that blows people's minds. I, I remember when cell phones became new normals. But technology, all the time, it changes, and new normals happen all the time. But those are, new, those are new normals that we find to be okay because we perceive them to be beneficial. The new normals we're talking about now, we find to be restrictive and they could affect our freedom and to make some of our own choices. And that's why we say, well, I'm not really into those. But listen, I, and I want to transition to a, a different frame of thought here. What should concern us even more is not just an infringement on our rights, but when a new normal affects our view of truth. See, a lot of Christians um, are saying, I'm, I'm upset about quarantines, and I'm upset, upset about being told I have to wear a mask to Menards. 
But listen, those are matters, but there are matters of righteousness that we should still be just as passionate about. I'm thankful on Friday night that our president, he talked about unborn children. He, he was referring to abortion. And listen, I just wonder if in the 40 or 50 years almost now that abortion has been legal, if it has become such a new normal to God's people that it doesn't make our stomach hurt every time somebody talks about it anymore. Has that become a new normal? I think about false teaching and, and maybe the, the different doctrines out there and different denominations teaching this. Are we, are, have we accepted some of those as new normals? Are, are, have we accepted open sin? Are we more passionate about our infringement on our rights than we are about open sin and promiscuity in our culture and the redefining of gender? Listen, many of those things um, have been around long enough now that we have to be careful as God's people that we don't start to view them like new normals. We can't get used to unrighteousness and be the people of God that we need to be. And I understand not wanting to wear a mask, but are we angry about sin? See, God forbids, uh, uh, God forbid, I should say, if we become more passionate about our rights than we are about righteousness. See, I'm not saying that rights don't matter, but do they matter more than righteousness? And we have to be careful about that because if you read the New Testament, you see uh, the Apostle Paul giving up rights for righteousness. And you see Jesus Christ giving up some of his rights for righteousness' sake. We have to be careful that we don't have the faulty mindset that we're more concerned about rights than we are righteousness. And one of the subjects that I believe is becoming a new normal in the minds of many people is this subject of marriage. It's been attacked for long enough that we have to be sure we don't view it as a new normal, whatever the definition becomes. Because our culture is telling us that marriage can be anything you want it to be. Anyone with anyone and anyone with everyone. It can be temporary. It can be optional. It can be expendable. It's not that important. And that's the new normal that for most people now, whether or not we accept it, that's the new normal. And if we're not careful, we could get used to that new normal and downplay God's normal. Because marriage was instituted by God, it is first a matter of righteousness, not rights. God created it. God defined it. God gave us a clear look at what he wants it to be. Therefore, his righteousness should be the first consideration in marriage, not rights or preferences. What I'm trying to say is marriage should not be defined by rights, but righteousness. And if we're God's people, we should first know what God's normal looks like and understand it, and second, choose to display it to the world because our culture needs a counter to their new normal. They need to see biblical marriages. God's normal for marriage needs representation. And Genesis 2 gives us a view, I believe, in just a few principles about marriage that can help us to present God's normal for marriage. First, and this is, these are simple, but I think they'll be helpful today. God's normal for marriage is built on fellowship. God's normal for marriage is built on fellowship in verse 18, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. 
And this is the very first not good of creation. Think about it. Everything else that God created in Genesis 1, he looked at it and he said it was good. It was very good. It was all very good. Well, here is the first time that we see God saying something was not good. Everything else was blessed. But he looks at Adam and he, and he says it is not good for that man to be alone. Adam needed companionship. Adam was created for fellowship. Solitude for Adam was not good. Adam was created in the image of God, and so therefore in the likeness of God, then he needed companionship. Because you think about it, God the Father has existed eternally since eternity, however you, you can understand that. Uh, God the Father has always existed with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, and those three form the Trinity, and they, they have a face-to-face -face communicating relationship they always have, and they always will. My son this week was just saying, um, Dad, I was talking about to, some, uh, to somebody about how God has always existed. And he said, and he's just laughing. He's like, I can't understand that. And I said, well, join the club. Because you know, it doesn't make more sense when you get older. That's the God we serve, and we just can accept by faith. He's always existed since eternity. He will always exist. And he's always existed in the form of three distinct persons in the form of the Trinity. There's fellowship there. So it follows then that Adam, being formed in God's image would require communication and require fellowship and require face-to-face -face interaction and a relationship with someone on his level. And folks, I know this seems basic, but companionship is God's norm for a biblical marriage. A relationship, fellowship. Um, when my wife and I were uh, beginning our relationship, we had known each other for about five years already and we'd gone to college together and we'd traveled and we had sang together, had sung together and if you can survive a month or a, a, a summer in a van with somebody, then it is absolutely meant to be if you haven't killed each other yet. So when we were deciding what traits to look for, both of us determined that this was right for us to move forward based on the fact that we had already proven to be friends. We had fellowship. Listen, our bond in Christ provided a basis for fellowship. We knew there was companionship. We, we love to be around each other. We talk, and sometimes her more than I, but we talk. We interact. We have a relationship. And you say, well, what's so unique about that? Well, look around at marriages now. Our culture almost promotes spouses living separate lives. And I think a large part of that is because our culture then is encouraging wives to be as career-driven as husbands. And I'm, I'm not going to talk about that this, this morning, but I do think there's a danger in, in that mindset. Well, the wife has got to be as career-driven as the husband. And I do think that's causing marriages to be, to, be, to be further apart, growing further apart. I mean, some marriages, they always go on separate vacations. They have different work schedules every day. They have separate bank accounts. They have different hobbies and different circles of friends. And, and some, I know, even sleep in different bedrooms. Listen, just because you share a home and, and you pay bills together and you own cars together and, and you have children together, that does not equal fellowship. Companionship is a huge part of marriage. God, at the very beginning, said it is not good that the man should be alone. Husbands are told in 1 Peter 3 to dwell with their wives according to knowledge. And if you're a husband, that seems like a tall task. But that's our task. That level of understanding and knowledge can only be discovered through a relationship of fellowship. God gave Eve to Adam because solitude was not good. 
There should be togetherness. There should be intimacy. There should be a shared life, not two separate lives. And most marriages, they admit that they end because they say they grew apart. Don't let that happen. If you're married today, you need companionship in marriage. And if you've bought into the new normal that it's more about an arrangement and it makes more sense business-wise or finance-wise or this or that, no, it's not about an arrangement. It's about a relationship. And it's time for God's people to go back to God's normal for marriage. It's about closeness. It's about communication. It's about fellowship. It's not about solitude. It is not good for this man to be alone. You might be busy, so make time for it. Schedule. I know this is really practical, but you have to make time. You have to schedule. Just the two of you. Find somebody to watch the kids. Do something together. Find something you like to do together. Or even just talk. And I think that's missing in many marriages these days. Is just to sit down and talk. Put everything else aside and just visit. Just talk. And wives are good at that better than men are. But men, you open up. You talk. And yes, your wife may talk more than you, but listen. Don't tune her out. Put the phone down or turn it off or throw it away or get a flip phone. Whatever you need to do to listen and talk and communicate. Men, we need to do it. Dwell according to knowledge. How are you going to dwell according to knowledge if you don't have time together? Your wife should be your best friend. Ladies, your husband should be your primary confidant. It's, he should be the first person you go to when you talk, want to talk about something. Talking about fellowship, relating, communication, being close, not being isolated. I really believe what we see here is based on the first need that God saw when he said it's not good that a man, the man should be alone, that the first and most important foundation for a marriage relationship is fellowship. I mean, nobody wants to just have an arrangement where we're just serving purposes and there's no intimacy. So God saw Adam alone. He decided he needed a partner. He was meant for fellowship, plus he was needing help in God's work. This is a big task. There are many things to be done. And the fact that he needed someone else to help him to be fruitful and multiply, you can't do that by yourself. Listen, these are things, they're not meant to happen through Adam alone. So we see something else then about God's normal for marriage. It's built on fellowship, but second, God's normal for marriage is strengthened in functions, roles, functions he said i it is not good that the man should be alone i will make him and help meet for him and many people then they they put these two words together and they make it a noun they say that a wife is the husband's help meet but there are two words here it's a help and meet two words god was going to send the help that was suitable for adam to do what he was supposed to do Help, meet, means someone like opposite Adam. That's what it means. The opposite of Adam, but someone that could be there to complete Adam. See, a lot of people, they get hung up in this language, in the terminology, and they assume that help means less than Adam, not as important, but they're totally missing the point in that. See, God saw that Adam's solitude was not good, meaning there was something incomplete about Adam. It wasn't everything that God's plan was for him yet. He needed someone else like him to fellowship with him, but different enough to complete him. That's not unimportant. Wives, it's not less than, it's not unimportant for you to be 
embracing your role as a help meet for your husband. This is not just helper. This is not just, well, they're just there uh, to, to help and they're not important. No, without Eve, Adam was incomplete. God's plan could not be fulfilled without her. And I say that because every family unit has functions. Every family unit has roles. The husband, and I know this isn't popular, but I mean, just bear with me here. The husband is the head of the house. I mean, I'm afraid, I don't want tomatoes to be thrown at me in this culture today. The husband's the head of the house. But that doesn't mean he's more important. He has a different role than his wife, but it doesn't mean he's more significant. That's just his role. And more tomatoes, maybe? The wife submits to the husband. Not because she's less important, but because she has a different role. And there are many that take offense at these kinds of things. But I want to remind you about 1 Corinthians eleven three 3, that says, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So you see the hierarchy there? That God is at the top, Jesus Christ is underneath him, we are underneath, as a man, I am underneath Christ, and then my wife is underneath me. Not in importance, but in role. So for a wife to say, well, I don't want my role to be under my husband is the same as saying, well, Jesus Christ isn't as important as God because he's underneath God. Does the fact that Jesus Christ, does the fact that his role is underneath his father, does that make him less important? Absolutely not. He's just as important and in many ways equal. He just has a different role. The Bible says he's equal with God. Even Jesus Christ is submissive in his role. Wives embrace the role as helper because Christ, even Christ, he said, the Bible says that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. To serve and to help is not a function of a lesser individual. It's important. Listen, a marriage is at its strongest when the husband embraces his role and the wife embraces hers. We find out a few verses later that God took a rib out of Adam to form Eve. And maybe you've heard this before. Listen, this is what Matthew Henry said. And I love it the way that he quotes it. It says, not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. The roles or functions in marriage are equal, just different. But our culture right now is saying roles are interchangeable. They're saying, doesn't husband can be this, the wife can be this, the husband and husband, they can just play whatever parts, a wife and a wife can play whatever parts, um, but that has led to mass confusion in our culture about marriage. God's marriage normal is to embrace the roles that he set here, and listen, if he set it up, who are we to think that our plan would be better than his? Husbands, lead the home without trampling your wife. Love and honor and dwell with her according to knowledge. Treat her as an equal, but lead. Men, lead. We need some men that will embrace their role and just lead. It's your role. Wives, submit. Not because you're less important, but because your husband is incomplete without you in your role. He needs you. Wives, us husbands need you. Aaron, I need you. You complete me. How about that? Needed some points there. Well, frankly, the world needs to see Christian marriages embracing their roles. 
embracing their functions. And not just so they can see it, but because that's how God's purposes for Adam were fulfilled. He needed someone to come in and complete him. That's how God's purposes in our lives are fulfilled. It's in that partnership together. It's kind of like God's plan for the local church. You know, he intends for you to be part of a strong local church, working together with other believers, striving together in God's work. But I look around the room and I think about the building. We all have different roles. We all have different functions. Not everybody can do this and that. You can't do all the same at the same time. Everybody has a different role to play, and it helps the body work and function. Husbands and wives serve God together. I mean, raise your children together, grow in Christ together, build a home together, do it in your role, but do it together. Every function is important to the process. It's incomplete otherwise. So God's normal for marriage, it begins with fellowship. It is strengthened through function. And then it's interesting how we get to the third point in just a minute, that God saw Adam's need for a companion before Adam did. God's looking at Adam saying, it's not good that man should be alone. I will give him and help meet or make him and help meet for him. But it's interesting how God allowed Adam to see that he had a need. Look at verse 19. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. And he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help meet for him. So here's Adam. God gives Adam the responsibility to name every animal. And that would have been an incredibly difficult task. If you can imagine, I mean, all the different species, all the different animals. But I think before the fall, it's safe to say that Adam was extremely intelligent. I mean, I, 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 mean, I would even go out on a limb as a preacher, make a bold statement, say, I think he was probably the smartest man on earth right here. That didn't go over really well. He was able to name every animal and remember what he named them. Can you imagine that? So he goes through this process and God brings him in. But as they're coming, as the animals are coming, and Adam starts at the beginning and, you know, he's aardvark and, and whatever, ant and whatever else there is, and giraffe, and there's an elephant. And, I mean, some of these animals are just crazy looking. Who knows where, where, where he came up with the ideas for the names? I don't know. But as he's watching these, these animals come in pairs, likely, to reproduce and be fruitful and multiply on the earth, he's thinking, well, the elephant has a companion, and the giraffe has a companion, and even the aardvark has a companion, that baboon, even they get a companion. And it's like, in his mind, he's starting to think, where's my companion? Among all the animals, he's thinking there's not an help meet for me there's not someone here to help me fulfill my purposes and as he's doing the work of God it becomes apparent to him that he needs someone like opposite him to have as a companion so he becomes aware of his need and and as he becomes aware of his need then God puts him to sleep and he takes a rib out of his side and with the rib then he fashions a woman and and Adam it's amazing how Adam was passive in the process I mean he all he says I have a need God put him to sleep. God pulled the rib out. God made the woman. God did the matchmaking here. I think it's, it's pretty neat how God, Adam is passive. God just does all the work. But look, look at verse 23. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
So Adam calls her woman, which, I mean, the, the root or the, uh, the origin of the word, um, some debate, but some say it's the female version of the Hebrew word for man. He was Ish, she was Isha. So she was of the same quality in likeness and image of God. We know that to be true, but she's just the female version of Adam. So, but we get a glimpse into Adam's mind because he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then look at verse 24. Therefore, this is commentary, likely Moses' edition and commentary because he wrote the book and it's commentary from the writer or narrator. It says, therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and they shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. So between what Adam says, when he says bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and then what the commentator here says, that therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, they shall be one flesh. You start to see that the marriage relationship is a very permanent relationship. It's a very connected relationship. God's normal for marriage, it begins with fellowship, it's strengthened through function, but it's expressed through faithfulness. See, in Adam's statement in 23, he says, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. In his mind, the woman was part of him. She came from him. They were essentially one and the same. He was the male version. She was the female version. But she came from him. There is both at the same time, listen, there is oneness and distinction. They're made of the same stuff. They're made in the image of God. They're made from the same material. But there's distinction in that you have a, female, a male version and a female version. Too many people take the fact that they're different to imply a devaluing of the wife. But listen, Adam's statement is more about the similarities than the differences. He's not thinking, uh, he wasn't thinking, oh, she's less because she came from me. No, he's thinking, wow, that came from me? God's a God of miracles, if that's the case. He's excited. It means something to him. Listen, Eve was taken out of Adam of the same material. That's not throwaway. She's not less than. She, she is not someone who is devalued or less important. No, you have oneness, but also distinction. And then verse 24 leave, says leave, and leave means to forsake. See, a man's priorities change. Before marriage, a man's obligations are to his parents, and after marriage, they're to his wife. This was important because in the Jewish culture, that traditional culture then, you have the society where honoring parents was of utmost importance, and it should be. But after marriage, the priority becomes marriage. That's the priority relationship. And this is important for the Jews as well to hear this because they had come out of Egypt. They're, they're the ones that had come out of Egypt were reading the book of Genesis. Moses was writing for them. And they had seen marriage done the wrong way, secularly. They had seen marriage, it wasn't a sacred institution. And in their minds, marriage wasn't sacred, divorce was allowable. But even Jesus in Matthew 19, he said that Moses allowed divorce, not because it was God's normal, but because of the hardness of their hearts. They had a secular view of marriage, they, so they embraced a new normal. But in God, folks, and I know this is controversial, but in God's original design, Marriage was an unbreakable bond, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You leave your father and mother, you cleave unto your wife. Those two become one flesh. Now, see applications of two applications from this. 
is the marriage relationship is permanent in God's eyes. God's normal for marriage, folks, is faithfulness to the institution of marriage. One man, one woman in a permanent covenant relationship, that's God's normal. Divorce was not meant to be a legitimate answer to marriage problems. I mean, one flesh, bone of my bone, that's permanent, that's serious. And I know we have people even in this room that have gone through something like this, and I'm sorry that you have, and I don't mean to sound insensitive to it. I hate that we've gotten to that point, but that's the result of the fall. Sin has caused uh, homes to be broken. but That's not God's original design for marriage. It's permanent in God's eyes. And I've been criticized even for taking a stand on marriage and divorce, but listen, I'd, be, I'd rather be criticized for being strong about something that seems to matter to God than have to answer to him for not taking his version of normal seriously enough. If God's people would treat the marriage relationship as permanent and live in such a way that allows it to be, there'd be a lot fewer broken homes in our country. I believe the erosion of the marriage relationship has contributed more to the current condition of our country than we realize. Faithfulness to the institution of marriage should be our normal. That's God's normal. The second application is faithfulness in the marriage. See, if two become one flesh, that implies that any other relationship, physical relationship, is sin. Any outside of that. And I was reading even recently about 20% of marriages experience some level of infidelity. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament are full of warnings about sexual relationships outside of marriage. God does, it not, God does not take it lightly. And I know, again, this gets uncomfortable and it's controversial, but any sexual union outside of marriage, according to the Bible, it's sin. When two people get married and they consummate that relationship, in God's eyes, they become one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, What know ye not, that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. So even in a moment of impulse, in God's eyes, that's how important it is. That's how sacred it is. The act of coming together creates a permanent bond in the eyes of God. It's beautiful within the bounds of marriage, but it is sin outside of those boundaries. Even more... Jesus Christ said that lust outside of the marriage relationship is sin. Read the Sermon on the Mount and see how he took the steps of righteousness. He took it up a notch. He said it's not just about adultery. It's about looking at a woman to lust after her. Now, listen, the new normal in our culture treats marriage as neither significant or permanent or even sacred. But God's normal says it is. To be faithful to the institution of marriage, but also to the other person in marriage. That matters to God. Because in his mind, it's flesh and bone. They're the same. There's, it's more than a fling. It's more than just conceiving children. It's more than just having some emotional connection. In God's eyes, there's a joining of two people. And within marriage, it's beautiful and wonderful and permanent. Listen, these aren't popular ideas, I know. But biblical positions, they rarely are. 
We have to decide if we're in this for our rights or for righteousness. We have to decide if we're going to embrace the new normal or God's normal. We have to decide if our marriages are going to be isolated or embrace the fellowship that God desires. We have to choose whether or not we're going to buck the roles or functions that God has given us for his purposes or we're going to embrace the functions of the husband and wife. We have to stand firm on whether or not we view marriage as expendable or if we're going to be faithful both to the other person and the institution itself. These are all decisions we have to make among the new normal all around us. We have to decide if we're going to let righteousness determine our steps or if we're going to make action, take action based on our rights. Listen, culture doesn't understand how important marriage is to God. God needs a representative of his normal. The fellowship and the functions and the faithfulness. That's God's normal. And so I ask today, Christian, are you representing God's normal in your marriage? And I know not everyone in this room is married. I understand that. I'll deal with that in a minute. But married couples, are you representing God's normal in your marriage? Or have you bought into the world's normal? Is there fellowship with your spouse? I want you to take inventory. Husbands and wives, think about this. Is there fellowship with your spouse? And by that I mean meaningful companionship because God never intended for us to live in solitude. Is there an embracing of the function and roles in your marriage? Or is that being bucked because you've been influenced by the new normal all around you? Is there faithfulness to the institution of marriage? And to the other person. See those traits represent God's normal. Don't get used to the new normal. It's nothing close to the beauty. And fulfillment. And accomplishing of God's purposes. That you'll find in God's normal. For marriage. And you might say well I'm not married. Well make the choice. That this is the kind of marriage you're praying for. This is the kind of marriage you're preparing for. It's going to be about fellowship and embracing our function and, and then having, uh, what's the last one? Faithfulness. Sorry, my, my mind went blank. You say, I'm not married. Well, it's, you say, well, I'm going to pray for that kind of normal. God's normal. Because I think a lot of singles, uh, they look around and they, and they let the world redefine what's normal in marriage and they say, well, I just, I want to be married so bad. no. Listen, take hope in the fact that God brought Adam and Eve together. Let God do the matchmaking. And you might say, well, I'm not married anymore. But listen, you can live for righteousness from this day forward. God's a God of mercy. You can be a help to a married friend based on your experiences. You can pray for your married friends because you know how hard it can be now. You can use your experiences to help somebody else, I think about our young people, and you talk about the impressionable ones who are getting used to new normals. And really, I mean, they don't know any different in some ways. I mean, to have uh, your, your children be exposed to things as children now that I wasn't exposed to till I was an adult, and now it's just commonplace. I mean, it seems like everywhere you go, you're seeing the new normal being lived out by the world at the store and at the restaurant and in Walmart. Everywhere you go, you can't get away from it anymore. And parents, we have a responsibility to help our children think 
about God's normal for marriage instead of the new normal that's all around them. Who's going to teach them if not us? And in another generation, if they've gotten used to the culture's new normal, who's going to represent God's normal in one generation when all of this stuff is suddenly normal for them? They're used to it, and it doesn't seem as bad in their minds as it, as it is for us who've watched it devolve. Eastside Baptist Church, how are we doing at exhibiting God's definition of marriage? We, we stand against those that redefine marriage to meet their own needs. Not because we're trying to be mean or divisive like people will accuse us of being, but because of righteousness. But I believe, I, I wonder how many Christians are doing the same thing in that in your marriage, you're redefining it based on your preferences or your rights, and it may not be as open, and it may be, may be more subtle, but we've got to be careful not to redefine marriage in our own homes. Let's go back to the Bible definition, God's desire for the marriage relationship. I love this country, but I believe the answer for righteousness begins in homes where God's people decide they're no longer living for their rights, but God's righteousness. They're no longer embracing new normal. They're going back to God's normal. We've got to be on guard against the new normal and embrace God's normal in the area of marriage. The world needs to see a representative of God's normal. If we're going to be salt and light, then it's time for us to embrace righteousness and God's normal in our marriages. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.